All right, good morning, everybody. Hymn 627. 627 stanzas 1, 5, and 10. Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, turned away God's wrath forever by his bitter grief and woe. He saved us from the evil foe. faith unshaken, that this food is to be taken by the sick who are distressed, by hearts that long for peace and rest. Let this food your faith so nourish that its fruit of love may flourish and your neighbor learn from you how much God's wondrous love can do. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Heavenly Father, shepherd of your people, you raised up James the just, brother of our Lord, to lead and guide your church. Grant that we may follow his example of prayer and reconciliation and be strengthened by the witness of his death. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week, 1 Timothy 6, 6-7. Let's speak these two verses together. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. What is contentment? Mm, not so much, no. Satisfaction. Uh, okay, inner peace, satisfaction. Not feeling like you need yeah, not feeling like you need anything. So I'm going to give you a little phrase. And this is what contentment is when we talk about it uh, within the church. Contentment is... Contentment, contentment is being happy where I am put. And this doesn't just mean whatever station in life you have been given by the Lord, wherever it is that you have been placed and planted by the Lord, it also refers to everything that the Lord has given you in your life. That I am happy where I am put. The Lord knows what is good for me, and the Lord always gives what is good for me. And even if 
I don't necessarily agree that what I have or don't have or where I am put in life is what is good for me. One thing is sure and certain, and that is the Lord decides that it is. So to be, this idea of contentment is to be happy where I am put. It's the Christian's chore, or uh, that's a bad word, the Christian's exercise in life to be content, to always be happy where God has put you and be happy with what God has given you. The Christian's job is to stay put and it takes an awful lot of discipline through your entire life to do that even to the small degree that we are able to do it in this life. But being happy where you are put, and this is great gain. Why is it gain? Who's writing this, these words? First of all, think about that. Right, Paul. Can you think of somewhere else where Paul talks about contentment and gain and loss? Speaks of his uh, disability, whatever that was. Okay, sure. Uh, to be satisfied with that. Sure, okay, yes. Can you think of another one? It doesn't mean Christ is gain. Yeah, Christ is my great gain. To lose all for Christ is my great gain. Nothing that I have in this world really matters. And to lose it all would be gain for me. Why is that gain? Why is loss gain? Because in gain, you are learning to love God. You, you are gaining because you're learning to love God instead of being so focused on what you have or what you don't have. You're also knocking out idols. The fewer idols that I have, the better. Why? Because the fewer idols I have are the fewer wars that I have to fight to draw closer to God. If I have lots of idols, it's a long and bloody battle. If I have just a few idols, then it's a short, bloody battle. And it's better to have a short, bloody battle than a long one. So. If I don't have my idols, if, if the Lord puts me in a place where I don't have uh, lots of things that I would like, it's probably better for me that way. I mean, imagine if I ended up actually getting that Ford Bronco. What would it do to me? Maybe the Lord knows what is good and is intentionally refusing to answer my prayers in the affirmative. And maybe I should learn to love where the Lord has put me, which is in a place where I don't have a Ford Bronco. You see, the fewer idols that you have, the easier it is for you to draw closer to God, which is ultimately what God wants. So to lose everything or to live in a state of contentment, to be happy where you're put, is great gain to you because anything else gets in between you and God. And the more that you put on there, the further apart you are separated by the great chasm of all your wants and desires and whatever you think is going to satisfy you, etc. Okay? Four, 
we brought nothing into this world. Yes, you certainly did bring nothing into this world except a bad attitude, which doesn't really help you. And there's something else to this. You have, you have brought nothing in, sure, but what did you do to give yourself the life that you are living either? Nothing. So not only did you depart from your mother's womb and enter into this world with no possessions and frankly no knowledge of what possessions are. You also entered into this world coasting in on a life that you had nothing to do with. The Lord is the one who gave you your life and permitted that you come into this world and when you came into this world you were perfectly happy having nothing. And it is certain, absolutely, we can carry nothing out. Sorry, what do you get to take with you? Somebody better tell Pharaoh, because you know they would bury the Pharaoh with all of his treasure and his favorite pets and his slaves, dressing, you know, so he had it all. This is why, by the way, an abhorrent thing to me as a pastor is to go to an otherwise Christian funeral, uh, but one in which the people who are mourning their loved one put things into the casket, like grandma's favorite kind of chips. We went to the vending machine and got her some Funyuns and we'll stick those in the casket for her. Or, you know, we wrote her a card and we put it in the casket for her. Or we'll put a, we'll put a quarter from her coin collection in there. And it's like, listen, you don't need to pay the toll to cross the river sticks. She doesn't need anything. She's, she doesn't need to leave this world with any of that. She's going to be getting a lot more than anything she ever had in this life. So, you know, that's an abhorrent thing to me. Otherwise, well-meaning Christians that somehow in the heat of, of grief decide, you know what? I know Grandma's probably going to be eating things in the kingdom of God that are much better than Funyuns, but boy, she did love them here, and I'm going to make sure she has some for the road. Like, Let's take a step back for a minute and acknowledge that she doesn't want them and she doesn't need them and she's not taking anything out of here. So don't waste the Funyuns, just eat them yourself, okay? All right, let's speak these verses together again. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Yes, sir. Going back to your comment about the pharaohs then by putting stuff in the tombs and so on. Sure. So whatever religion that they had, did they believe there was some kind of an afterlife? Yes, they did. And the religion they practiced was called paganism. Which was, I mean, so I'm being tongue-in-cheek. Because yeah, it's not like, we don't differ. Once you're a pagan, you know, it's not like, well, what branch of pagan are you? Like, what, what's your denomination in the Christian church? Well, I'm a Lutheran. What kind of pagan are you? Well, you know, I'm, I don't know, whatever kind. I'm a Druid. Like, I'm a witch. I'm a Druid. I'm a Wiccan. I'm a Jehovah's Witness. <gasps> Whoops. <laughs> uh, so, you know, what kind of a pagan... What, were the, what kind of pagans were they? Well, you know, 
They had an afterlife, but they thought that all of the good you had you could take with you. Or like the Greeks, you're going to need some money if you want to get across the river Styx. So we'll put some money in your tomb for you so you can carry it with you. You jingle your little bag of change as you're walking down to the underworld. Um, yeah, so we bury them with everything that they have, all of their treasures here, so that they have them for the afterlife. So all of the wealth that they have here then comes with them. So as successful as you are here, then you can make sure that you're set up for success in the next world because you take everything with you, which is really, frankly, that's depressing. <laughs> if I have to take everything with me, I, what's the point in going? I mean, is there, is there nothing better than what I have here? Like, it's great. If you have lots of money and a great house and a great car and, you know, sure. I mean, things sometimes can be a little easier. You can have a little more convenience in your life. But, but at the end of the day, does it matter? I mean, no. There's, there are so many things that are much more important than goods. And if the goods are things that I get to take with me, then I don't want to go where I'm going because I'd rather get to go someplace where everything I thought was great here is overshadowed and, and taught to me to be so much better because all of the new things I'm getting are extravagant. Hey, um, catechism. What is the seventh commandment? You shall not steal. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way but help him to improve and protect his possessions and income. Uh, you shall not steal. What does it mean to steal? To take something that is not yours. Correct. And the seventh commandment, you see when you look at the Ten Commandments, they all kind of interact together. So if we're going to talk about stealing, what do you think, just looking at the Ten Commandments, the act of thievery, of stealing, would be a manifestation of? In other words, where does theft begin? Greed. Not with greed. Covetousness. You steal because you covet. And why do you covet? Okay. Lack of, contentment. Lack of contentment. Thank you. Yes, everything else is just a symptom. Jealousy, greed, pride, as pride as it relates to uh, covetousness. All of those are simply symptomatic of the underlying thing, which is that you are not happy where God has put you. So you seek to make yourself happy, not by loving and trusting in God, but by going after all of the other things that you think are going to make you happy. Uh, so theft, stealing, begins in the heart with covetousness, and ultimately the root of that is that you are not content. I am unhappy where God has put me, and if God isn't going to care about me and my happiness, well, doggone it, I'm going to take it into my own hands, and I'll be the one to make sure that I'm happy. And if that's the route that you begin to take, well, then there are no holes that are barred because, well, you can do whatever you want, which includes not only stealing as, hey, you know what, this is yours, now it's mine, and I'm going to run away, and I bet you can't catch me. Nope. 
<laughs> See? So I could get away with it. Uh, that, it's not just that. Theft, stealing is not just that. It's the, it's the, you know, well, you know, I didn't pull the trigger mentality. I didn't kill him, I didn't pull the trigger, but you called out the hit. You paid somebody to pull the trigger. What's the difference? You know, your hand wasn't on the gun, you still, you still did it. Okay. Uh, well, I have every legal right to do this, to take away their home and to, to make it be mine or to liquidate their assets and then have them be my whatever. Well, the law says I can do that. The law has said and continues to say lots of things. Legality does not mean morality. So it, just because you're doing it in a way that looks right and by the accounts of man are right does not mean that what it is is right. So you're not to just blatantly walk up and steal something, or you look at some of these cities where the lootings happen and they just walk in and wave at the camera and take a TV and walk out. You know, it's not just that. It's also the idea that I'm gonna work things to my advantage so that what they have, I can have. Um, you are to help and to improve, help your neighbor to improve and to protect what he has, which means that as you, are happy where God has put you, you are also happy for all of your neighbors for where God has put them. Doesn't matter if they're bringing home more money per paycheck than you, you are happy with what you have and happy with what they have that you don't, which makes this a lot more difficult. And not only are you to be happy, content with where you are put and with where your neighbor is put, you're also supposed to work to protect, every, to protect the place where your neighbor has been put so that nobody tries to remove him from that who is not the God who put him there. Okay, kids, you can go downstairs. Questions about the seventh commandment? So maybe God could give Yeah, that's right. I could be really humble about it and say, okay, you know what, maybe I don't need the Sasquatch option with the 36-inch tires and the, and the winch in the front, you know. <laughs> maybe I could settle for crank windows. I don't know if they even make crank windows anymore. I kind of, honestly, I kind of miss the crank windows. There was something kind of cool about having to roll the windows down. <laughs> I like the crank windows. I don't care what anybody says. Um, Oh, sure, yep, okay. story about a man who told his wife when he died that he wanted to be buried with all his money. And that created a dilemma for her, so she wrote him a check. <laughs> Smart woman. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I mean, what's the point? What are you going to do with it? I mean, God doesn't care about your money here. You think when you go into his kingdom, he's going to somehow care about your money? Ooh, boy, you didn't come in here with those with those greenbacks, you know, heaven's not gonna be worth a lot to you now, or you, whatever it is. Oh, you didn't bring a car with you to heaven? Ooh, sorry, how are you gonna get around? I mean, that's silly. The things that we would think are important, they just don't matter. Money's just money. Bill. I think the term to steal has numerous uh, variations. Uh -huh. I mean, 
I would accept the point of discontent is, is one, but I don't think that covers the point I'm thinking of. People are devious and manipulative in if they're trying to buy a herd of cattle or a piece of ground or something like that. And that's not discontent of what they've got, it's greed or a desire to have something that they see that they can, you know. Sure, but. Stealing has, has a very, can be applied in a lot of subtle different ways. Sure, and I'm not saying that that person wouldn't be operating with greed, but what I'm saying is, what is where does greed come from? Why would somebody be greedy? Why would they want more money? Because, they're, because what they have is not good enough. That's, that's my point. Why are you greedy? Because the amount of money I have, no matter how much it is, isn't good enough. I want more. I don't know that people that are greedy have ever thought quite that deeply. I'm, sure, I'm sure people that are greedy haven't thought about a lot. Uh, the, point that I'm, the point that I'm making is, any kind of a quest or endeavor to attain for yourself something you don't have now is rooted in discontent, whether the person realizes that they are discontent or not, and the manifestations or the symptoms of what discontent look like are many and varied. But the, the, the person who says, I'm going to cheat my neighbor out of this cattle buying deal so that I can come out really well, in the end, wants more money because he's, he doesn't look at what he has and says, you know, I could continue doing an honest business and just be satisfied with what I have. It's, it's that, um, oh, what's the word for it? Avarice. That's the word. It's, it's that avarice. No, I, what I have will never be enough. I want to climb and climb and climb and climb until the day I die. And then I want to take everything with me. <laughs> so I, under, I understand what you're saying. I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to go down at, to, the, to the core. So yes, there's greed. Yes, there's avarice. Yes, there's, I don't, there's, there's millions of different symptoms that you see, motivations for people to behave poorly uh, to steal in whatever sense of uh, stealing is, is being performed. But at the ultimate root of all of that, if you would just thank God for what you have and be happy and content where he has put you and not seek anything more than that, you wouldn't be doing that. Brenda, and then I've, I've got you. That's good. I like that. That's what the Lord, that's what contentment is. is and tying in with the seventh commandment, you know, because they all have the positives. It's not that you refrain from the negative. It's also that you behave in a positive. So, yeah, that's true that you look at what you have and you say, hey, I'm really thankful for everything that God gives me. You know, I live in this rat nest apartment and my landlord's a real... But you know what? I have a roof over my head and the Lord has provided that to me and I'm not really hurting 
and someday I might be able, you know, by the grace of God, to afford a better place to live than what I live in right now. But thanks be to God for this. And thanks be to God for the millionaire that lives two doors down from me, however that works, in his, in his mansion. And, uh, and, uh, and, and thanks be to God for all that God has provided to him and for his family that he gets to live in, in that place. Yeah. I'm happy with what I have, and I'm happy with what you have. That's really good. I'm going to remember that. Uh, Morris. I was going to suggest that as one chooses to go down that road of avarice, sure. uh-huh. uh, it becomes worse as, as you progress. Absolutely it does. You, that a person uh, is going to desire more and bigger, and, and when, if that's achieve then more and bigger again. Right. There's never a sense of satisfaction. Even when you get what you thought you wanted, there's still no satisfaction because then, and then you think, well, what can I do that's more? The thing is, it's an addiction. Uh, all of this stuff, it's, it's sin-rooted addictions. It's like doing a drug. When you look at these, when you look at these, um, these sad cases of drug addicts who start here and end here, it's never, there's never a point where they say, well, you know, um, I'm content with whatever this is that I'm doing now at whatever rate. There is always a spiral down. It's never just a, a gradual thing. It's always a spiral. The second time doesn't help you as much as the first time. The third time doesn't as much as the second. The fourth time doesn't, much as, uh, doesn't as much as the third. And then what do you have to do? You have to compensate for the fact that what you're getting now is not the same as what you were getting before. So you have to go more and more and more and more and more. Bigger, more, more extravagant, more. And it is. It's this horrible spiral down from where I was doing okay to I'm completely out of control and the more that I get, the more that I want. Which is another reason why if you lose or you become content with what you have, it ends up being great gain to you because I'm not worried about how am I going to chase the next high from acquiring and how am I going to... Uh, be able to satisfy, no, how am I going to be able to one-up myself from this, this one here? How, how am I going to be able to come up with an even bigger and better business deal than this one I've just done? It, it, none of that then matters because it, it's not about what I am acquiring or the adventure or the thrill or the high of it all or, or whatever, however you want to say it. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is here I am thanking God for what I have and being as responsible with it as I can, and thanking God for what my neighbor has. And then, you know, you get into the idea of Christian charity in love, where my, I'm thankful for what God has given my neighbor, but this neighbor really looks like they're struggling, and while I thank God for everything that he does provide to them, maybe, just maybe, I am something else that God has provided for them, and I can assist them as the hands of God, working in mercy and in love toward my neighbor, in a sense of real Christian community that is rooted in the love of the person and not of the possession. 
I've never met this woman, and Bill probably knows where I'm going, because he's the one that told me the story. Never met this woman once in my life. But if you want to know what it looks like to be happy where God has put you, Verona shining, that's the woman. I think about that story all the time. Never once met the woman, but Bill told me the story about her. She had, yes, so you, you, those who actually did know her and remember her can correct me if I'm wrong, but had nothing and still said, thanks be to God, he has so richly blessed me. Had a serious hip deformity that she, she had a serious limp when she walked and in the later years was confined to a wheelchair because, because of that. And you, still, thank God for his gifts. You want to know what a Christian looks like? That is what a Christian looks like. Holy smokes. Man. To be able to be in a position like that where you don't have anything, where your health is not good, and still to look at the Lord and say, ah, thank you for all of the riches that you have given to me. That is gain, friends. I wish that I had that. I wish that I was as good a Christian as Verona Scheiding was. Before that. <laughs> and so does God. addendum to that. About 15 or 20 years before, the Senate had a major Senate-wide thing. Yes, forward in remembrance. He's got a good memory. I'm going slip. And every congregation had somebody assigned to go around and canvass the congregation for a special gift. I'll sure. above your weekly, monthly tithe, whatever. Uh-huh. My dad's sister lived on a farm there according and I was in there to see her one day and she says, Rona wants to know why you haven't come to see her. And I said, Well, Rona, you know, she lived on her husband had been in a first world war veteran and she drew a veteran's pension because of that and maybe a, a little bit of social security. I mean nothing. And so I said, Okay, I'll go to see her and I don't remember the amount. But in comparison to what she had, Aunt Vivian told me, she says, Rona's figured out where she could cut a little bit here and a little bit there and, and then make a, a gift of $100 or, or $50 or whatever. Yeah. If everybody in Senate would even have come close to giving in relation to what they had, they could have done mission work all over the world, built 10,000 new churches and everything. It was an unbelievable gift from somebody that didn't have anything except one thing. Yep. Yeah, that's beautiful. See, and that's, that's the widow's might. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the widow's, yeah, quite literally. And, and you say, in, you know, if everybody had given in comparison, and that's a big if because most people don't give in comparison to that. That's the whole point of Jesus' parable. It, money is a really, you know, of the things that get people in trouble, money is number two, which is pretty high up. I mean, there are lots of things that can get you in trouble, but money being number two on that list. So Jesus talks a lot about money because money is such a problematic thing. And he, does, he tells that parable of the widow's might on purpose to the Pharisees, because the Pharisees love their money. Now, do the Pharisees give a lot of money to the church? 
You betcha they do. But percentage-wise, are they giving as much as that one woman did? Not even close. The other point that you tell about that was that she had fallen and was hurt, and uh, Richard Heights and I went over to her house, and the ambulance was there to see what it was, and they were putting her on the gurney to go to the hospital, and she died two or three days later. So she was darn close to the end right there, and I was holding her hand, trying to think of something comforting to say to her, and she said, the Lord has been so good to me. I could have started crying there, it struck me so hard, because of the scripture passage, be thou faithful unto death, and she was at death's door and made that confession. Isn't that great? Never forget that. Here's the th okay, here's the thing about being a pastor. Now, don't get scandalized when I tell you this, okay? This is, just, this is just how it is. Most of the things involved with being a pastor make your life incredibly depressing. You see things and you hear things that are absolutely overwhelming and soul-crushing. And there really is no draw for anybody to want to go into the ministry and be a pastor. None whatsoever. You don't look at it and say, hey, hey, now that's a job. Most people look at it and you say, boy, you know, I think I'd rather be a garbage man than a pastor. Hubris. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. But there are some things, tiny, tiny little things that you get to experience, that you have the privilege of experiencing as a pastor, and that is one of those kinds of things. And it is those kinds of things where you actually see with eyes unclouded the Lord at work. And those are the things that completely overshadow everything else that sucks about being a pastor. Because when you get to see all of the goodness of the Lord at work, there is no greater treasure. And you can hardly complain about the things you have to deal with when you get that privilege. You get to see miracles. You get to hear confessions of faith. You get to go to the, the hospital bed or to the deathbed thinking in your head either Okay, I've got everything planned out. I know exactly what I'm going to say, how this meeting's going to go. I know what the people are going to need to hear, and I've got it all planned out. My book's all marked up, and I'm ready to go. Or you say, I've got absolutely no idea what I'm supposed to say here. And whatever it was that you said to yourself before you walked in that door, the Lord takes it, and he shakes it out, and he politely throws it in the junk. And he gives you something completely different. And sometimes the Lord just kind of gives you what you need to say, and other times... From the person there, the Lord gives you what you need to hear. And those are beautiful. I got a comment, but Nancy's ahead of me here. Okay, Nancy. She had a very, very small house. And it was getting pretty bad looking. And the Lutheran kids painted her house for her. They did a lot of little little things that needed to be worked on, tightening this and all these kind of things. And she would not have been able to do it on her money. Mm -hmm. But because the kids did it, it really looked nice. 
Yeah. In my Bible class, way back there, there was a member, a long-time member of the congregation, Jimmy Buck, John Buck. And we were having a discussion about, uh, this is, has no point to our conversation, but it's, it's a humor. That's different. <laughs> Yeah. Um, this is my unpopular opinion. I think the world, broadly speaking, the country of the United States of America, a little more narrowly speaking, and the Christian church in America, speaking specifically, could really uh, benefit from a huge stock market crash and crops burning, and savings being emptied out. I think, I think that we could all really benefit from that. Why? Because we lose everything that's stopping us from saying, God has really blessed me. Thanks be to God. You can get so distracted by what you have that you lose in your you lose in the blessings that God has given you your sense of contentment with those blessings. And I think we could benefit from having some of those things ripped out from underneath us. In fact, if you want to know what something that I love, it's up on the bulletin board, the quote um, from Aristides of Athens, Christian philosopher, in his Apology or Defense of the, of the Christians, who were coming under fire because they, well, Christians, Christians just, they got blamed for everything. So, well, blah, 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 Rome's falling, Greeks, Greek, Greece is falling, it's because these people aren't worshiping our gods. If they worshiped our gods, uh, and if they weren't atheists, then our country would be doing better. Anyway. So he writes this apology, and you can read what I, the excerpt from it that I have out in the bulletin board, but there's one thing in particular. If somebody from among the Christians died, and they didn't have enough to be able to cover the costs of a funeral, and their family didn't have enough, then the entire church would come together, and they would cover the cost. And if there were some who did not have enough even to offer to help, then they would go without food for two or three days, and the money that they would have spent buying themselves food to eat, they put towards helping to pay for that cost. Yeah. 
That is contentment. And that's what the Christian community is supposed to look like. The church is supposed to look like Verona Shiding. The church is supposed to look like a woman who has nothing giving a substantial percentage of her nothing to the work of the church and the church coming and taking care of her own. That is what the church is supposed to look like. And to the day you die, saying, the Lord has richly blessed me. That is contentment. You, you see in the example of Verona, whether you knew her or not, but just from the sto this, this story here, that is the gain in all of this. What are my attachments here? There aren't any. What's weighting me down? I'm not saying that Verona was not a sinner, okay? But, but doggone, if there ever was a saint, she sure was one. Okay? What are the things that are impeding my ability to look at God and be thankful and be happy. And whatever it is that is impeding your ability to do that, pray that the Lord would cut it out. If it's your, if it's your stocks, pray that the Lord would crash the stock market so that you don't have them. If it's your fields, pray that the Lord would cause some kind of hailstorm or firestorm from heaven to come and burn up all of your land and fill it with sulfur so that you can never plant anything there ever again. If it's your work, pray that the Lord would have you fired. Do, do you see this? Anything that has become to you established to such a degree that it impedes your ability to be content where you are in life, to be happy with what God has given you and where God has placed you, pray that the Lord would take it away. Because you're not going to turn into Verona Shining by getting more. Rhonda, did you have something? Yeah, I I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm it's okay, you did say happy. Yeah, I was going to ask Bill or Nancy, what was her last name? So I was trying to remember who it was. Because I lived in Fort Nancy. Shiding. Yeah, I know. You said Oh, okay, so. okay. Her grandfather would have been pastor at Corning. Her grandfather was pastor at Corning. So there is hope for pastor's children. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the first time I was in St. John's, that altar, and I whispered to Lee, who does the cleaning and dusting? And he thought I said something that I was, you know, kind of carrying somebody's uh, job down or something. And he says, we'll talk about it when we get out. So... When we got out, I said, who does all of that dusting and cleaning of the altar? And he said, Rona and Bill Scheiden. Mm -hmm. They were caretakers there for a long time. Read the Gospel of Luke and read about the purification of Mary and the presentation of Jesus at the temple. And you will find... Verona Shining in Anna the Prophetess. Okay, anything else on the seventh commandment on 1 Timothy 6 or on being content? I think it's 
<laughs> Good, I'm glad. Good, finally, somebody's learning. <laughs> yes, sir. I think it's interesting that uh, of all the people that uh, have gone ahead of us that belong to the three congregations which sure. went together to form uh, Trinity, that uh, we're speaking of Roman uh, Shaggy instead of all the successful Right, and by the way, this is not me saying that if you, you know, anybody who wasn't as poor as Verona Scheiding is less in the eyes of the Lord. That's not what I'm, so don't, I think you probably know that. But just every now and then there are people that are just exemplary models of the Christian faith, and you just pray. That, that you could be as, as good a Christian as they are. And your pastor prays that prayer too, by the way. Your, your pastor knows many people that are much better Christians than him and prays that someday the Lord in his good grace would allow him to be even a percentage closer to some of those people uh, because they are just such upstanding good examples of, of, of the Christian faith. Point being is that we thought she had nothing, but she had this great legacy. Absolutely, yeah. Wealth is not measured in the possessions of man. All right, we're going to look at the large catechism. Your purification, um, so that you can enter into the kingdom of the heavens, because remember, if if, if you die today and then, ah, no, we don't even need to go. If Jesus comes today, <laughs> if Jesus comes today and he says, for you Narnia friends, come further up and further in, and he opens the door, are you going to get to come in to that door just like you are now? No. Is it going to be like somebody coming to your house and opening the car door and saying, hey, hop in, we're going for a trip. And he's, oh, okay, great. Nothing about you changes except for the fact that now Jesus is here. Do you get to just walk in the door? No. no. You don't. Something has to change. Even if Jesus were to come right now, something has to change in you from what you are right now to what you will be when you live there. And this is kind of what we've been talking about. The, the gold needs to be purified. The, the good stuff needs to be refined. And the dross needs to be burned away. And Paul talks about that, that you will be transformed. And Morris had brought this up, I think this was two weeks ago. So if you, if you don't remember, I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you. Um, Morris brought this up. What is the time frame that at least St. Paul seems to indicate? How long does it take for that to happen? We will be all transformed 
in a twinkling, in the twinkling of an eye. So again, what is it that prevents you if Jesus were to come today and say, come further up, further in, here is the door, what prevents you right now from going through that door? I'll give you a hint. What condition do you suffer from that prevents you from being able to walk <laughs> over the threshold of the door? Sin. Sin. I need you to be more specific. What would we call your sinful nature? No yes, that's true. Can you think of something else? I, uh, there's a specific other name that I'm looking for. Sinful nature is right. Old Adam is right. But there is a the name of the actual condition. Original sin. Original sin is a disease. And your whole life here is lived treating the disease. And Jesus treats it very effectively in his hospital. But even in his hospital, he is treating it. So when the door is opened and Jesus says, hey, come here for a minute, you still have that underlying condition, your pre-existing condition that stops you from being able to go into that door because he says, ah, 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 remember when we looked at Revelation, nothing bad and nothing impure can come into this door. So you look at yourself and, and if, you can, if you can say, I am 100% pure, there is nothing impure in me, then you get to go in. And the thing is, who is going to be able to look at him and say, yep, that's me, 100% pure, never done a thing wrong in my life? <laughs> I mean, other than the Pharisee. I mean, woe, to that, woe to that publican over there, woe to that tax collector. You know, I'm, thank you, Lord, that you made me so much better than him. I've never committed a sin. I'm fine. See, so nothing impure can enter in. Only that which is holy can enter in. So your sickness is not allowed. It's like, um, you know, it's like during the COVID lockdowns when you, when you went to the hospital for something and there are like three different gates and airlocks that you have to walk through and there's the signs everywhere. If you have a sneeze, you are not welcome. If your nose is running, go a mile away. If you have cold, clammy, sweaty hands, we will get you out of here with security, you know, and you walk through then you go, oh, 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 as your nose is running because you're wearing the mask and you think, is this, a, is this a sickness or is this the, I don't know, uh, my nose is running, am I not allowed in here? And you think, oh, uh, I shouldn't be here. I don't feel good. I shouldn't be here. Why? Because nothing that is germ infested can come into the germ-infested place. That's maybe not the best example, but the idea of the security at the gate that says, hey, listen, there's people here that are sick and that are getting better. We want them to get better. If you have something that is a sickness that you're gonna bring in here, don't come. Stay away. Uh, don't bring any of that in. Well, that's kind of like, you know, Jesus says come further up and further in and you get to the first airlock and it says, if you, coveted your neighbor's things, don't come in here. And you say, 
well, I feel like I've been pretty good about that. I'll just move on to the next door. And you get to the next door and it says, if you ever had any other God but God, you're not allowed to enter in. And you say, oh, maybe I really can't come in here. And then the Lord says, yeah, no, duh, Sherlock. You can't come in here. That's the whole point. But come here for a minute and I'll fix you up and then you can come back in. Okay, so there are things, your underlying pre-existing condition, the disease that you suffer with and that you have suffered with from the moment that you were conceived until the moment that you die, that needs to be treated. You can't come in if you're sick. So you are made well in the fullest sense in this transformation that God enacts by purification. Now this is, this is what the Lutherans would agree with. Um, in fact, this is, how the, this is how the whole church has always talked. Um, you read, I was, I was reading a lot just this week about this. You, you read the church fathers, everybody talks about this. There is not one person who disagrees with this. It's, it's unanimously taught. The thing is, the codified doctrine of purgatory is not universally and unanimously taught. There are elements there that are universally and unanimously taught, but not the doctrine as such. So when we talk about what is the Lutheran position, frankly, the Lutheran position is just the plain old Christian position, which is, hey, this is, there's something that's gonna have to happen and here's what it's gonna kinda be like because you can't get in here if you look like this and that's just, you know, why does your flesh die and need to be raised again? Well, because it's sinful flesh. Because the ultimate, you know, your, your disease will be treated, but as you live in this world, you, don't, you won't see the treatment's effects to its fullest because your flesh is still going to die. So when Jesus raises you up after you have died, he's not going to raise up, he's going to raise up the same flesh, but not the same flesh. Or he's going to raise up the same flesh, but he's going to make it better. Everything that you have now is what you're going to get and more. And he's going to make a Thomas Jefferson person, you know, like Thomas Jefferson made his Bible, take a pair of scissors and cut out everything that you don't like and then keep the rest and say, hey, that's the Bible. Well, that's what the Lord's going to do with you. He's going to say, hey, come over here. Let me get my scissors for a minute. I'm going to cut out all the stuff that I don't like about you. And all of those little things I'm going to put in you know, all the stuff that I really do like about you and I'm going to rearrange you just a little bit and then everybody's going to see you and everybody's going to know you and everybody's going to love you just the way that I do. And then all of this other stuff, you know, we'll just kind of get rid of it. So um, this you see then, firstly, in the, in the creeds, where do you think this might come into play in the creeds? If you had to guess an article. Okay, sure. Which is what, which is what article? Uh, second. Third. 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 Third article. You've got three choices. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the third article. So here in the large catechism, I'm going to just um, make sure I find this. This, uh, this is what you get when you inherit, you're the fourth generation to inherit a book. There are so many... Uh, 
notes from other people that you kind of almost can't read it yourself. Okay. <clears throat> Here we go. So this is the large catechism. This is Luther. If you've never read the large catechism, really, I mean, do it. The small catechism is fine, but everything you like about the small catechism, it's like the resurrection. Everything that's good about the small catechism is made better in the large catechism. It's just, I wouldn't ever ask you to recite to me passages from the large catechism. <laughs> uh, okay, meanwhile, however, this is on the third article, while sanctification has begun and is growing daily, that's something to take note of also, that sanctification is growing. Because, uh, here's the thing, right? Have you ever heard the term progressive sanctification? Good for you. <laughs> I'm really glad to hear that. Okay, progressive sanctification is a term that is typically used disparagingly of the idea that I am made holy and then my holiness continues to grow. I'm going to tell a story here because I got into a debate with my wife once before we were married about the idea of when God makes you holy, are you just, is that just it? Or do you grow in holiness? And she said, well, God makes you holy, and you're holy. And I said, I just don't really think that that can, it just seems, does, my gut says that can't be right. And, and I've, I've done enough studying. I don't know, I don't know that that's right. Careful what you say. <laughs> this is all just a matter of record. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> and she said, well, let me tell it to you like this. If a woman is pregnant, is she pregnant or not pregnant? Well, I mean, she's pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. And she said, okay, well, that's like God makes you holy. You're either holy or you're not holy. And I said, okay, sure, but how many weeks along are you? Do you see? So, yes, you're made holy, and then from that point, you know, you're holy. But within that... Within that holiness that God gives you, within that sanctification, he continues to work. That you are continuing to grow in holiness. You're, you know, it's like you live, hmm, maybe this is a bad example. I was going to say it's like you live your life in a perpetual state of being pregnant, but I don't know that that is appealing. <laughs> no, it, it really kind of doesn't. Uh, it, anyway, you know, how many months along are you? There's, there's, there's a sense of progression, but not so much progression even as growth. So it's not like God makes me holy, and then my, my goal in life is to get from point A to B in holiness. I don't really care about necessarily going anywhere with my holiness, but my holiness expands matures, if you like fine wines, or if you, like me, appreciate a nice fine scotch, there is the sense of age and maturity. I mean, you can, you can get a young wine or a, or a young scotch, although I don't typically drink anything that's aged for any less or any fewer than 12 years, because I'm a, an unforgivable snob. But, but, you know, you can go, you can get a young wine. You can go get a young wine, 
and you can open it up and you can pour a glass of wine and you can drink it and it can be just fine. There's nothing, that, nothing that's saying this is, this is against the snob. There's nothing that's saying a young wine isn't or can't be a good wine. But you become a snob when you have waited and taken a wine or a scotch that has been permitted to mature and age. And it really does grow, it expands, it, it gets depth to it. You can drink the same kind of wine, two glasses, and, and they'll both be fine, but you'll notice that you know, there's, there's a maturity that comes with the age, there's a, there's a depth that takes place, and that's like your sanctification is, you're right, you're made holy, that's great, and a young holiness is just as good as an old holiness. But how deep is your holiness? How many months along are you? Uh, what is the maturity of your holiness? And we're always praying, we're always praying, if you pay attention to the collects of the church, uh, that God would increase our holiness. That's what we're asking. We're not saying make us holy again, but we are saying now that you have made us holy, make us deeper and richer and truer and more mature in our holiness. We expect that our flesh will be destroyed and buried with all its uncleanness and will come forth gloriously and arise to entire and perfect holiness in a new eternal life. Which means that even if you get really holy, this is really important, this language, this is why words matter and translations matter, to entire holiness. So from, from birth to death, from conception to death, rather, in this world, are you ever going to be entirely holy? No. No. Now, doggone, you can be a saint. You can be a saint like John Paul II or Verona Scheiding, and I did put them in the same category. You can be a saint like them and still not be entirely holy. It's impossible to be entirely holy, but to get in, to go through those pearly gates, you have to be entirely holy. Abraham? Pardon me? Abraham. What about Abraham? He wasn't entirely holy. No. Yet he was the father of the nation. Sure, yes. Not entirely holy. But when do you get, what is required for you to get into the kingdom? To be entirely holy. And who's the one that will permit that you become entirely holy? Christ. And who is the one that makes you entirely holy? Christ. And when he raises up your body that was sown in corruption, it is reaped in incorruption. There is the transformation in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, your sanctification is now seeing its telos, its ultimate fulfillment in the work that Christ does in purging away everything that was ever bad and bringing you in with everything that was ever good and magnifying everything that was ever good in you. Remember, I said this, you're going to recognize everybody in paradise. Not, and it's not, not just the people that you knew and loved. You're going to recognize everybody. You're going to recognize Abraham. I'm going to recognize Verona Scheiding. Never met her once, but when I get to paradise, I'm going to look her in the eye and I'm going to say, hey, I know exactly who you are. 
You just look like Verona Shiding to me, but it's not because of what your face looks like. You're known for the good that you were permitted to give and to receive. And there's nothing then that clouds over the eyes that would cause somebody not to know you because Christ has purged all of that away. And you finally see Christ in his full image and likeness in your neighbor by all of the good that your neighbor did and received in Christ's name. Okay, we'll continue with the large catechism. Uh, yes, next week. Uh, next week it'll be Bill's turn to ding you. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be Bill's, Bill's turn to ding you? Yeah. Okay, all right, good. <laughs>